luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech. And my hope is that we come together to share more than technology and expertise and products, but that we share a vision of a future that is better than today. A vision of technology as the driver of human progress. Your hosts are Mark Schaefer and Douglas Carr. Do you recognize that theme song, ladies and gentlemen? This is Mark Schaefer, and we have sort of a Jetsons-themed show today here on Luminaires, where we talk to the brightest minds in tech. And I'm here with my co-host, Douglas Carr. Doug, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for the assist on the, on the jingle there, Doug. <laughs> yeah. Today, we are certainly holding true to our promise. And we have with us today, Dr. Richard Kelly. He's a senior engineer at the University of Nevada, Reno. Now, the thing that is so interesting to me and why we sort of started off with this Jetson sort of theme is, Dr. Kelly, I first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you for obliging us. And uh, your primary research interest is in the application of machine learning to robots operating in social situations. So obviously, my mind just went to Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. I'm thinking that had to be an inspiration for you. You know, uh, a lot of the robots we see in fiction mm -hmm. are socially intelligent. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, Rosie, uh, the robots in actually almost every movie have social intelligence. Uh, and what's amazing about that is that we don't even really notice it. You know, we're social without thinking about it most of the time. Uh, but honestly, uh, Rosie is light years ahead of what we can build today. So if I could build a robot with the social skills of a four-year-old, uh, I'd call that a win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, where, where's, like, where's Rosie on the emotional intelligence scale? She's up there. She's yeah, way sure. up there. Way, way beyond any robot we can build today. She got to, she's into sarcasm. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> true, true. How did you get into such a fascinating field? I mean, this is like the cutting edge of interesting technology. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I'm really lucky. Yeah. Uh, I decided to go to grad school and happened to land in the robotics lab. And the first project I was handed was actually building a system that could watch people and predict what they were going to do next. Oh, my gosh. And that's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. It turns out it's something humans do effortlessly. You know, we're doing it right now as we're interacting with each other. But when you try to program that into a machine, it turns out it's extremely difficult. Uh, and so we turn to machine learning and uh, collecting data to basically say, if humans are in this sort of situation, uh, what are they going to do next? And when I say next, I mean just on the timescale of a few seconds, because it turns out that's enough to give a robot basic, basic social intelligence. Because, I mean, that's what AI does best, right? It just it recognizes patterns. Yes, exactly. And so, like, facial expressions and responses, I mean, it's all pattern-based, right? Exactly, yeah. You collect a lot of data, people making sandwiches, and you, you parse that into tiny pieces. And then from there, you can build a model that watches a person walk into a kitchen and say they're going to make coffee or they're going to make a sandwich. Yeah, I saw a demonstration from uh, Google, I think it was, and it kind of, like, peeled back... 
the curtain on how they develop some of this machine learning. And when you really see how simple it is, I mean, it's like you think it's just like this genius thing that they can predict these things. But it's just like, well, if the pattern's like this, then do this. It's yeah, really, that's it's exactly really, right. Yeah, it's really, it, yeah. It, it, it's really pretty simple. Yeah, it, it can be. The, yeah. the key is having all that data and then having a model that, that can uh, make use of the data too. So. So let's take it up on a grand scale. When we're talking today, we're going to be talking about smart cities. Um, And you're obviously a leader in this. We hear that term a lot, but I'm curious about your definition of the term. And then maybe give us a scale of, you know, are we already, do we already have, quote, smart cities? Or are we, you know, still years away from them? So I think we're still a number of years away from a, a smart city in the way that most people use the term today. Um, I don't know that there's a really good, concise definition of smart city, but I think that it has some features. So uh, in particular, I think that right now, access to services in a city is can be very, very challenging. And one of the main things that a smart city is going to do is make it effortless to access civic services, whether that's public transportation or access to government. And it's going to be just as easy as calling an Uber is today. And so I think that's really the essence of smart city is using technology and artificial intelligence to increase accessibility. So really, IoT is is one of the key enablers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, devices that you can embed uh, pretty much anywhere that use very little power and can talk to each other are going to be really essential to uh, give, you know, for example, city officials insight into how people actually use the city and live in it. And that's going to allow them to make more livable spaces. So as you dream about these cities and collecting this data and leveraging this incredible power of the Internet of of Things... um, you know, one of the things that we've talked uh, to a lot of our guests about are the security concerns. In fact, it's almost like a theme uh, it, with almost everything that's going on as cities transform and businesses transform, as our lives transform. And uh, you, you, you hear about, well, are we going to have to reboot our cities? Are we going to have to reboot our cars? You know, it's like, oh, our city isn't working. Just turn it off and you know, it'll, it'll work again. <laughs> So tell me about um, how is security built into these visions? So I I think when you say built in, that's exactly the right phrase that you need to have in mind talking about security in this setting. Uh, Because this technology is so new and we're starting out not quite from scratch, but in in a lot of ways really from from the beginning, uh, we can bake security in from the start, which is the right way to do it. So. We look at security from a a couple of different perspectives. Uh, We look at it as a a hardware problem. How can we build hardware that is more secure? And so when we're looking at building out a communications network for our intelligent intersections, that's one of our key considerations. From a software side, because I'm a software guy at heart, uh, my my perspective is that uh, every security hole starts its life as a software bug. And so by starting to think about how we can write software better uh, and safer, we can also make it more secure. So as we develop new algorithms for the self-driving car project I'm on, we start out prototyping, but as we move into a more uh, production-oriented environment, uh, we're looking at using 
uh, better programming languages that make certain types of bugs just impossible or at least very hard. Uh, we're looking at uh, the practices of aerospace because they've been dealing with safety critical systems for a long time. Uh, and we're trying to take those best practices and really incorporate them into our development to make sure that our software is safe and then by extension secure as well. well I, I know that Dell is one of your big uh, strategic partners. Right. So, I mean, are, is there a collaborative relationship on something like that where you they can help you kind of see some of these problems that could emerge? Yeah, I, I think our collaboration with Dell is really in another direction, which is data, uh, which is also at the heart of a lot of the intelligence that we're building. Uh, but as we're working with Dell and deploying technology out in the wild, uh, I'm sure that we'll have the chance to collaborate uh, on the security question as well. It's so new, uh, taking security and combining it with uh, autonomous systems and artificial intelligence, uh, that we're really just beginning to ask, you know, where are the big holes and how do we find them and and prevent them from becoming a, a crisis. Yeah, oh, I see. So really, I mean, it's just so new. I mean, but you've got to have all that locked down before you really start executing it in. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah, in a yeah, citywide yeah. type of thing. Yes, absolutely. And you have to be ready to to sort of hit the brakes and reconsider as you are uh, trying experiments, because we really are in an experimental stage when it comes to some of the smart city ideas. Um, a, a focus of the smart city ideas that we've talked about thus far have been largely talking about transportation and mobility within uh, uh, a smart city. I'm curious about uh, there was there was a term that I read intelligent mobility. Um, how does how does intelligent mobility improve transportation? Because it's it's well beyond just autonomous vehicles, right? That's that. Yeah, absolutely. So we're. We're looking at intelligent mobility as partly transportation, but also just understanding better how people are using cities. So one of the projects that we have in, in our intelligent mobility initiative is instrumenting intersections with LIDAR. Uh, so a LIDAR sensor is essentially a spinning laser scanner that gives you a 3D picture of the world around the sensor. So we can put one of these sensors at an intersection, and all of a sudden we can see in 3D, in real time, uh, all the pedestrians who are using the crosswalks. We can see the cyclists who are uh, maybe running lights. We can see cars. We can see trucks. And we are taking that data, and we're using it not just to make our autonomous vehicles better, uh, but we're also going to be working with the city of Reno and other government entities in the region uh, to give them access to that data to help them understand from an urban planning perspective, how are people actually using the city? And then how can they redesign elements of the user experience of the city using this new class of data? You uh, mentioned uh, Reno, your home city. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful town. Love Reno. Glad you think so. Uh, are there other star cities? Are there cities that are like really progressive that are just kind of pulling you into this sort of work? I think most cities in the United States, or at least cities of a certain size, have at least one uh, smart city initiative that they are exploring. Uh, I think Columbus, Ohio has a, a large grant from the Department of Transportation to explore a lot of these ideas. And then internationally, I know there are a number of cities, uh, particularly in Europe, that come to mind that are really pushing the envelope on the smart city idea. Uh, one example that really stood out actually in Asia is I think uh, Singapore has a database of every tree in the city. <laughs> what? Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Wow. Um, and and so you know when you when you think about um, you know could Parks and Rec 
uh, use that kind of data, collect it first and then make use of it. Uh, just the potential there to have a, a new level of understanding or even a new kind of understanding about the city is, is substantial. So we try to take inspiration from all of these projects around the world. Maybe they'll finally find out if if, the, if their bark is worth worse than their bite. I just couldn't. I know that's, oh, that would no. be. I think that would be categorized as a as a dad joke. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Kelly, you know, a very sensitive issue is a big part of the smart city idea is is autonomous vehicles, and we've had a number of incidents in the news where we've had some failures. In fact, we've had you know a fatality or two, and in the past, these innovations and developments in transportation were, were, were able to gestate without the glare of social media. And today, now everything gets just amplified. So what's your position as, as, a, as a researcher and really kind of as a force and a spokesperson for these technologies? Do you just kind of wait that out? Is there a way to neutralize this uh, because it does, it, a lot of it is kind of blown out of proportion. And I'm not saying people shouldn't be concerned and we shouldn't be responsible and accountable. But the truth of the matter is that these are breathtaking new innovations. And, you know, just like, you know, the space program, things are going to happen along the way. They will. Uh, I don't think we want to neutralize the experiences that we're, we're seeing because uh, I think we have a lot to learn about safety and safety practices um, from, from events like what happened with Uber a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think we need to take each tragedy and uh, first off, recognize it for what it is, but then secondarily learn from it and see what can we do moving forward to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And if you look back at the history of aviation, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration was created because of a mid-air collision over the Grand Canyon. Uh, where many people died. So hopefully with autonomous systems driving on our streets, we, we don't have to have an event of that scale to really learn what to do and how to do it. And so I think really using these, these events uh, and learning from them is the best way for the industry to move forward. Uh, I think it's interesting looking at, at the history of this technology, though, or of all technology. Um, you know, starting with cars, people were very, very skeptical of cars at the very beginning. Uh, people didn't like them. They didn't want them. Even something as innocuous as elevators, unmanned elevators, were, uh, were a point of contention in some cities uh, several decades ago. And now, you know, we don't even think about elevators as being unmanned. They just are. Uh, I think we'll eventually get to the same point with uh, autonomous uh, mobility technology. Uh, I think it will take some time, and I do think that social media can make it challenging to have a sensible reaction to some of these events. So for us, uh, we really just emphasize the, the safety element of what we do, because safety is the, the first value that we have in all of the research that we're doing. Uh, and then we also point out that a lot of research still needs to be done to make this technology viable uh, in the same way that airplanes today are viable and safe. So you know, as a researcher at a university, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I get to uh, ask these questions and look at the things that really aren't solved uh, and just recognize that, that there are a lot of things that still need to be done. I, uh, I recently rented a car and traveled across the country. I told Mark this, and it had lane sense technology, and it had uh, adaptive cruise control. And, and I found it just seamless and incredible how much safer, you know, uh, and I didn't feel 
iffy, you know, working with it. And which which kind of takes me to the next question is the interaction of these systems is quite phenomenal. Um, I learned some new acronyms as I was researching this podcast, and some of them I want to go down the list. There's V to V, vehicle to vehicle, V to D, vehicle to device, V to P, vehicle to pedestrian, V to H, vehicle to home, V to G, vehicle to grid, uh, and V to I, vehicle to infrastructure, like highways. I mean, that's all for one automobile. That's an incredible amount of interaction. Um, are, are you guys developing from a regulatory standpoint a, a set of standards, you know, for that interaction? Or is the industry doing that? Or how, how does that work? You know, right now, I think that the best answer is it's a little bit of the Wild West when yeah. it comes to, to standards being developed around these technologies. Um, for a couple of reasons. First off, the technology itself is so new uh, that it might be a little premature to try to develop regulations, especially around some of the, the vehicle to X uh, concepts, uh, because we haven't had enough experience really with how the technology is going to be used. Um, so, so regulating you know, vehicle to infrastructure may be challenging. There are some standards that are beginning to emerge. Uh, so uh, there are some uh, short range radio standards that most of the industry is settled on. And we are working with the state of Nevada because a lot of our funding comes from, uh, from Nevada uh, to explore the best way to develop uh, a regulatory framework around the technology. Uh, really lucky that Nevada has been uh, working on laws for autonomous vehicles since uh, 2011 or 2013. Wow. Yeah. And so Nevada was actually the first state to pass laws regulating autonomous vehicles. Uh, so we've been doing it for a while. Uh, and that means there's a lot of, of built up institutional knowledge in Nevada government around uh, the right way to do uh, autonomous systems. And so we, we do leverage that and we work with the state. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, Nevada has taken an attitude of let's let's see how the technology is evolving uh, rather than try to lock down uh, exactly what should or should not be done. Uh, you know, subject, of course, to making sure that it's safely deployed. Sure. That, that's a very interesting insight that really, you know, the, the technological progress, it's going to be a dance between in a technological innovation and regulatory, the regulatory environment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah, to, uh, you know, to really make sure the technology is used in the best way possible. Uh, I don't think you can over-regulate or regulate too soon, but at the same time, you know, when you have zero regulation, as we saw in Arizona, things can go south rather yeah. quickly. Yeah. So it's a fine balance. So as I was reading about some of the smart city efforts, uh, I saw this really inspirational case study where they had this example where they had children using smartphones as a data collection advice, device to look for pollution uh, counts in New York City. And what they found is that there were pockets of the city where the pollution was a lot worse than they thought. Mm -hmm. So like every person was kind of like a walking data collection point. I'm sure you get exposed to all these amazing ideas and benefits. So as you see this world of integrated data collection points, what's making you go, wow? What, like, what are some of the amazing benefits that you see are going to be in our future? So I think the big one for me, and I am biased by my perspective, which comes from autonomous vehicles and autonomous robots, uh, is LiDAR technology. Uh, so I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, I think the interesting thing about LiDAR is that it's getting very, very cheap. Uh, so 
in 2004, a, a LIDAR system that could see the world reasonably well would run you about $80,000. Now, uh, this, a similar system uh, may run you uh, maybe $8,000. And with new developments in uh, solid state technology in the not too distant future, maybe within the next five to 10 years, uh, similar systems are gonna cost less than a hundred bucks. So when you have uh, a sensor that can see the world in 3D out to maybe the distance of a football field, that is going to give you a completely new perspective on the world around you. Uh, it's going to let city planners see the world in a completely new way. It's going to make it so that every vehicle on the road could have 3D vision uh, that works better than, than our eyes do and works perfectly in the dark. And I think cheap LiDAR technology is going to be absolutely revolutionary uh, when it comes to perceiving the world around us. You, you think about... Um, our, our smartphones. Every smartphone is also a camera. And, you know, we've seen with things like Pokemon Go that as camera technology gets really, really good, we can uh, take uh, the digital world and project it out into the real world. Uh, LiDAR technology is going to be able to, to take that idea and just amplify it uh, in a way that we are only beginning to understand. Will it be miniaturized as well? I mean, with the, with the cost going down, is this something that we could almost see like in a smart device someday? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, so, you know, the iPhone X has the, the face scanning technology. That's very, very similar to LiDAR. Take that concept and project it out to uh, a whole football field. And eventually it could end up if not on a phone, on a tablet. I mean, there's there's a really <laughs> profound implications even for like personal safety. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's yeah. it's going to be remarkable to watch, uh, and I think it's going to drive a tremendous amount of innovation in several different spaces. Wow, you know, as you look at a modern city, we we're talking about you know how people are traveling and and making that more efficient, making it more safe. But I'm curious too, how does this transform cities? where we often see urban blight or we see poverty sections of town, where if we can make a transportation system so efficient and intelligent, d- does that start breaking up some of the some of the problems that, that happen in urban centers of growth? Yeah, I think, I think it really does. So uh, for an example, uh, we work with the uh, Regional Transportation Commission in, in Northern Nevada. Uh, they are responsible for the, the bus routes. And one of the problems they have in Reno uh, is that there are a lot of rural areas outside of uh, Reno's core where there would be people who, who would definitely be served by public transportation, but it's really hard to justify the tremendous expense of having a bus go, say, 30 miles out of town and, and just to pick up maybe a few people. Yeah. Uh, and so I think autonomy sort of changes that calculation and makes it so that maybe not a bus, but an autonomous car could go out and pick someone up. And now all of a sudden, you've got the opportunity for people who are in rural areas to work in the city much more uh, cost effectively than is possible right now. Uh, So I think access to uh, city services is going to be a, a huge benefit of autonomy. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much. Our time has just flown by and you've been uh, so generous with your time and this has just been an eye-opening discussion for me i've learned so much from you we'll put uh the link to your site in our show notes but if people want to learn more about you learn more about what your center is doing 
at the, the University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, where can they find you on the web? So on the web, uh, we can be found at www.unr.edu slash N-C-A-R, N-C-A-R, for the Nevada Center for Applied Research. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. And thanks to all of you. We never take you for granted. Uh, all our listeners and fans out there, uh, we appreciate you. You have helped us become one of the top 1% business podcasts out there. And we appreciate every one of you. We never take that for granted. This is Mark Schaefer. On behalf of my co-host, Doug Carr, thank you so much to listening to Luminaries. And we will see you next time. Luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech, a podcast series from Dell Technologies.